Troll, if you remember last week, if you were here, many were away on, um, on the spring break time. But um, the, the thought was at the end of the lesson was, you know, the control in our lives started really when Satan rebelled against God. He brought that rebellion down to earth, and Eve and Adam, they rebelled against God's laws by partaking of the fruit. So that was a second generation. We had first generation Satan, second generation uh, Adam and Eve. They rebelled. They wanted to do their own thing. And then guess what? They passed it on to their first child, Cain. And Cain rebelled by not offering the right sacrifice, and that cost him dearly. And, and so ever since that time, we have this issue of control. And so, you know, uh, that's, that's really what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. Um, that was the desire for control and where it started. Tonight's lesson as we continue, it's the root and the fruit, as well as the biblical resolution for control. Where does, where does control get started from in our own hearts? The need for control, the, the desire to want to sort of dominate and kind of not just win, but just have our life where we want it to be. And sometimes we don't allow God to be in charge and God to be in control. We, we want that for ourselves. It's the desire comes for some level of control. It's inherent in all of us as part of the fall, and we have to learn to control our control, okay? We have to learn to control our control. That's a good form of control, okay? But uh, a lot of it is, is something inherent to it, uh, inherent to us. And so the need for control can show up in many areas of your lives. And you say, well, I don't really think I'm a controlling person. And so we might not have that dominant personality, but that, that is, a, that is a, a control freak, let's call it. And there are some people like that. And, but, but most of us aren't that level of control. And so we're not talking really about that. But I want you to see this little diagram here, how can control can show up in all of our lives and we really don't think about it. But, but look at some of these right here. If you just start at the, at the top, there's self-preservation. We're all wanting to take care of our bodies and live a long life and, and take care of ourselves. And so we want to have that level of control. And if you just go around clockwise, around this, uh, this circle, you've got uh, self-pleasure. We all like to do certain things that we want to do, and we want to do those things. And, and in what we believe, we won't, don't want to be told what to believe. We have freedom in America to believe what we want to. Praise the Lord for that in how we live our lives, in where we go, in our pursuit of happiness, in how we spend our time, in relationships with others. No one forces us to say, you have to be friends with this person, or you have to go here, you have to live there. There, there are lots of things that we make choices on that we have control over, and, and, uh, and so if those things were taken away, we might begin to think, wow, Maybe I am a little bit more controlling than I think because I like doing that and that and that and that and that and that. And when we can't do that, that's when there might be some level of pushback in our own spirit. And so these are just some of those practical, real-life things. Control can be proven by our lack of self-control. Sometimes we just lack control, and we do things that we shouldn't, and therefore we need to get back under control in self-expression, our free speech, and not wanting to be dominated by others through liking to be superior, not inferior. I don't think any of us here today would like to be dominated by someone and be inferior and thought small and, and, and worthless or useless. We all want to have some purpose in life and usefulness in life, and so that's some level of control right there. Not a bad form of control, but nonetheless, 
there's that thing that we want, and then in loving our independence. Aren't we thankful for our freedom in America, folks? Yeah, we have control to do so much, where we want to live and how, how we want to pursue a career in college and not college or some work type of thing. So many things that God has given us that we're allowed to sort of be in control of. We're not a communist nation, and so we should be thankful every day for the level of control that God gives us. And praise the Lord for it. So since we all have a desire for control at some level, as you just see from this little diagram, in certain areas of life, it's important that we first allow God to have his sovereign control over us and our lives and maintain the attitude that we talked about last week from James chapter 4. If you would take your Bible, turn to James. We're going to be focusing on James 3 tonight, but last week I read and, and mentioned James chapter 4. While you're turning there, it says... Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for it, what is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that, because we're just here for a short time, we ought to say, this is uh, James 4, 15 now, for that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Does that give God control? It certainly does, doesn't it? If the Lord wills and everything we do and the plans that we make, we hold them loosely because we give God that sovereign control over our lives. You hearing that buzzing up there? Okay. There, it stops when I get close. Let me just, let me just keep trying that. So God is in control of the sound system, isn't he? So we have, to, we have to yield to that. And so all sorts of things. So God is in control. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will. And so we offer as Christians, Lord, nevertheless, as Jesus prayed, not as my will, but as thy will be done. While we make our plans, ultimately we yield to the sovereign plan of God. And that happened in the Klein household this week, where they must yield to the sovereign plan of God in Jamie Klein's passing. And God is sovereign in the timing of that and, and how that whole thing proceeds with, with uh, the family dynamics. And I got to watch that from a front row seat, the control that, that um, the Lord has over life and over the time of our life and, and, and even over Mrs. Stitzinger passing and the way that she gently went into glory. God is sovereign over all these things, and so we leave that with Him. So again, thankfully, just by way of introduction, most of us are not control freaks, so I'm not trying to, to teach and preach to you about being a control freak. Most of us are not that way, and so that's not the focus um, where it dominates our lives. But more in subtle ways, folks, we can have our controlling moments, and this is what we need to keep track of as we think about it. And look at our text tonight. It's in James chapter 3 not four, James chapter three. Let me just read three verses for us um, tonight. I'll, I'll, you can stay seated. James three thirteen. it says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, is sensual, is devilish. Let's ask God to help us as we go through this tonight. Father, thank you for the wonderful privilege to open your word to this dear church family tonight. Thank you for everyone here. 
Lord, I pray that as we uh, seek your word, that you would give us the wisdom of God to be able to apply the truths of God to our lives, that we would learn to relinquish control to you, that we would be gracious in our interactions with others, and Lord, truly, that we would not be considered harshly controlling people, but uh, people of God who are gentle and, and, and kind and have the character qualities that Christ had and that we will see in this passage tonight. Bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. So in your notes there, you see some of the common characteristics, the common characteristics of a controlling person. So let me just give you some of these. Um, you see that if you look down, you'll see bold letters under each of these, um, and it spells control. Each of the first letters starts with uh, the, the words that spell out control as an acrostic. So common characteristics of a controlling person. Number one is a critical spirit having a tendency to be negative and not happy with what others do. How many of you know people that have a critical spirit? Raise your hand. Yeah, all of us probably do know someone like that. And sometimes, if we're honest, we can be critical ourselves. It's that critical spirit having a tendency to be negative and not happy with what others do. They may be quick to complain about things and people, what they do and what they think and what they say. That's an indicator of having a controlling spirit. They display a pessimistic attitude. Nothing is ever right. They don't, they're not happy with anything, and something irritates them all the time. That, that can be an indicator of a, of a controlling spirit to some degree. By the way, that is their normal default setting. That's who they, they revert back to. That's their natural response for someone who suffers like that. It's how they usually are by way of life, and they just feel justified in being that way. People around them who receive that type of criticism often feel rejected or unvalidated or not accepted. And so there's that critical spirit. Letter O would be the obnoxious person. They're, it's, um, they're harsh or sometimes cutting. Uh, rebukes or stern words with someone who didn't comply with that controlling person's desires. And so that attitude can push people away because they're exercising that controlling aspect of their life that no one likes. So you have C-O and then N is need to keep score. The need to keep score. Well, I did this for this person, and now I expect that they'll do something back for me. And if they don't do something back for me, you know what? Then they're just, that's not fair. They're just going to have it, and I'm just going to let them know. And that's a form of, of control, the expectation that we need to get, keep tallies of the favors that we give to people or the way that we minister to people and serve people. And so I'm giving, giving, giving. If I don't get back, there's that discontent. That can be characteristic of a controlling person. N is the need to, oh, I mentioned that, the need to keep score. T is tenacious. Not letting go of an issue. Do we know anybody like that? <laughs> Don't be nudging each other now. Don't be doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's that tenacious not letting go of an issue, pushing it till they gain compliance with their position because the person just gives up and says, okay, we'll do it that way. Yeah, because they're just, they're, they're, they're tenacious about their position and they don't want to let it go. Now, in some con things and convictions, that's good, but in other areas where we can compromise, we ought to be willing to do that as the people of God. 
So there's rigidity. And then the other O is overactive jealousy or envy. Overactive jealousy or envy. See that? That's the second O there. If they're not sensing enough appreciation or someone is getting more attention or accolades than them, they may become envious of someone else's success. Look at verse 14 of our text tonight, James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. They may become envious of another person's success. We can think about, I think about in the scriptures, Saul who was that way, and we'll talk about him in just a moment. The last one there is L, and that is lost ability or interest in hearing another's point of view. You know anybody who can be closed-minded? They're not open to anybody else's ideas. And that can be difficult to tolerate at times. This person may like to interrupt and get their superior point across or even belittle someone else's point of view. They feel like they're always right and their way is the best way of doing things with little tolerance for alternate views or ideas. So those are just some ways. There's, there's many more as I was studying this out. There's, there's some, some people write about 20 different types or, or, or characteristics of a controlling person. We'd be here all night just to do that, which we don't want to do, but... That gives you a kind of a synopsis of what a controlling person can be like. For, for us, at times, when it, we're not on our best behavior, right? That those things can show up in our lives. And so in James 3, you'll notice that James is talking about the wise man. Verse 13, James 3.13, Who was a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? He's talking about a wise man endued with knowledge. It's interesting that he doesn't contrast the wise man with a fool. He contrasts the wise man with a selfish and contentious and a controlling person. The wise man acts this way, but the contentious person, the selfish person, the controlling person acts this way. And so that's the lesson for tonight. What's the root of our Control. Where does it come from? The root and the fruit and how to resolve this issue. James gives it all to us right here in this one passage. So it's important that we, we understand this. And so first of all, there in your notes, Roman numeral two is the root of control. And folks, it starts right there with bitter envy. We just read that, didn't we? But if you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. The wisdom of God... God wants us to display in a righteous and a godly and a holy and a gentle manner. We'll get to that at the end. But first, he's talking about where that root of that controlling, harsh person can be, and it's rooted or it's grounded in bitter envy. Do you ever think about that? Envy. Have you ever envied somebody? Can you think about someone right now? Don't raise your hand. Just think about someone, yeah, you know, that person has everything, or they just got all these talents. I wish I had what they had in their little thumb or their little finger. And we can become envious of some people. And if we let that envy grow and grow, that can become a, you know, a stronghold in our life. The strongest example of envy in Scripture, as I mentioned, is Saul that I can think of. When he learned about David, remember 
the woman, the women were coming back when David came into the city, and they were praising David. David had slain his what? His how many? His ten thousands. And how many did Saul have? Only his thousands. I mean, only his thousands. You know, he would have been happy slaying his thousands if he hadn't heard that David had slayed his ten thousands, right? And so he wasn't satisfied. His thousands was perfect until David's slaying his ten thousands? Wait a minute, I'm the king around here. How could this, my captain, who I'm the one who put him in that position, how could he take all my glory and all my fame and all my, my prestige? The Bible says when, when Saul heard that, he began to eye David from that point forward. And he began to look and say, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on this guy because he, he put onto David things that weren't there, thinking David's going to try to take over my kingdom. Dave, and that's what envy does. It, it, it gets into our heart, and it, and it drives a wedge between us and others who we think might be a challenge to us. And that's a form of control. And that's what he's talking about here, bitter envy that we get in our hearts. He eyed David, 1 Samuel 18, 9, and that is that, that root of control. David had something that Saul didn't, and it began to gnaw at him every day. And if you keep reading there in, in 1 Samuel 18, you see that he watched David, and he watched David, he began to fear David, he became paranoid about David, until so much that he wanted to, he threw a javelin at him, wanted to take him out. You know the story. He went from loving David to um, detesting him and pursuing him like a, like a pesky animal. Saul thought that eliminating David would take care of his problem. Now, when we think about this idea of envy, folks, I, I'm, I'm thinking about Proverbs chapter 27. It's not a common verse, but I want you to listen to it. Did I put it there in your notes? Proverbs 27, um, verse 4. It says this, Wrath is cruel, and anger is outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy? That sort of puts it into the context, doesn't it? Wrath is cruel. Wrath and anger. Wrath is, is uh, let's see. Wrath is cruel. Anger is outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy? In other words, there is no remedy for envy. It can get into us so strong that it, it just it takes over and there's no remedy for it when it's in there and just rumbling in our spirit, it can take over once it takes root. Every, every envy knows no logic or mercy. It just knows dominance and defeat. I gotta, I gotta catch up. I gotta get that other person. I gotta get to that level. And that's what Saul was thinking. I gotta take over what David has stolen from me. So there's no remedy for envy. Um, once it takes root, root, wrath and anger can be appeased, but envy is difficult to satisfy. So every time David was in the presence of Saul, it irritated him. It angered him. It frustrated him. David became Saul's enemy, and David did nothing. It was all in Saul's mind and heart. And so that's what, that's what envy can do to our hearts, and it it, it fuels that control. 
And so that's one of the roots of control that, that uh, James is talking about here in James chapter 3. And so how do you respond when someone gets something that you wanted or you are declined something that you wanted? We either want more attention or want more approval or we want something that our neighbor had or something like that. That can become a, a controlling thing in our life. So we can manipulate someone or a situation in order to get our own way or we might withdraw and write off those around us who are denying what we want and we retreat into our own world to try to teach them a lesson. Okay, well, I'll show them. I'm just going to pull back and I'm, I'm going to give them a silent treatment. I'm not going to give them what they want. Well, that, that's a form of manipulating, isn't it? In order to sort of get a, a leg up. And I was just talking with someone recently about that very thing. Someone was mistreating them to the point where because this person I was talking to wasn't doing everything that the other person wanted, the other person pulled away and, and, and just treated them poorly to almost punish them for not giving them what they wanted and gave them the silent treatment in order to heap guilt in their heart as a passive form of control. Well, if you're not going to give me what I want, I'll just back off and I'll just give you the silent treatment and I'll make you feel guilty. If I get sick or if I get hurt or something happens to me, you're going to really feel guilty. That's a passive form of control, right? And so we can, we can manipulate in that way and envy can do that as well. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, by the way, says, love envieth not, right? That's the opposite of love. So one of the surest ways, folks, for us to harm our testimony is to let envy rear its ugly head because we will do things that we thought we were never capable of when we're allowing envy, bitter envy, as James 3 talks about, to just sort of grip us. And so sometimes we're not even self-aware of that. And it might be a loved one trying to say, you know, I'm, I'm noticing a little bit of that tension in your heart. We need to take that as of the Lord when it's someone we love and knows us that sees that going on in our heart. And so that first thing there is bitter envy, verse 14. If you have bitter envying, and the second thing there, he says in verse 14, is strife in your hearts. Strife. There in your notes, that is selfish ambition. That's the, that's the description of strife there. It's selfish ambition. So wherever we see strife, let's read selfish ambition. So if we say in verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earth, earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and selfish ambition is, there is confusion in every evil work. And so, plain and simply, James is saying the desire for control is motivated also in our selfish motives. It's within us. It's what we want. It's what we desire. We're all selfish at times. Is that true? We all are. No man ever hated his own flesh Ephesians chapter 5 says. And so it's true, and so we have to keep a lid on that continually. There's a Latin proverb that says, most men live on the cafeteria plan, self-service only, right? <laughs> they just self-serve themselves. In studying this, John MacArthur 
um, says, Selfish ambition is an arrogance and a desire for self-fulfillment at any cost. Now, if that's not a definition of control, what is, right? Our selfish ambition, we just want what we want at any cost. Doesn't Jesus say, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ? And sometimes that's hard to do because we're, we're in our flesh at times. And so we have to deny ourselves and, and get out of that situation. So envy and selfish ambition are the two key roots, if you will, that we're talking about here. They're the roots of control. Another proverb, this is a Jewish proverb, says this, there is no room for God in the man who is full of himself. Don't you like that? There is no room for God in the man, the person who is full of themselves. And so selfish ambition, that envy and strife, that is the root of control. We want what we want and we will push hard to get that sometimes. And all of us have our buttons that we're going to push to get that's going to affect us more than something else in someone else's life. And we all have to look and say, what's that thing that, that consumes me more than anything else? And say, Lord, I'm going I'm to yield that to you. So, so notice there in your notes, envy is, and selfishness are nourished from three sources. Three sources. Verse 15, it says, This wisdom... It's, it's not from above, descendeth not from above. It's not godly wisdom, this bitter envying and strife, this selfish ambition and envy, this control. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is three things. Is earthly, there in your notes, as you see, it's earthly. That corresponds to the world. It's worldly. The wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. It's seeking to gain an upper hand of control through worldly wisdom found in secular humanistic philosophy. Maybe it's through science. Maybe it's through politics. Maybe it's through making money. Maybe it's through education. Maybe it's through religion, but it leaves God out. It's all the things that man sees as valuable to say, boy, if I just had that, I could have more control. I could have more power in this life. I would feel happier about myself. All on an earthly realm of success that we allow to just become overzealous in our life. Because in our pursuit of that, it sort of puts God to the side. And so it's earthly. That's what he's talking about there. It's the experts that tell us what our problems are and how to fix them that, and ultimately gain control over our lives if we yield to their worldly influence. Well, just go out and make more money or just go out and get better educated or just go out and, and, and just state your cause and, and make sure people know where you're coming from and dominate them and don't be weak. And so it pushes us to that level. That's earthly wisdom. It's worldly wisdom that leads to, it feeds this and nourishes control within us. Second, you see there in verse 15, it's sensual. That corresponds to the flesh. It comes from our senses. It comes from our feelings. Author, commentator John Phillips says, this fleshly or sensual source refers to our old nature that hungers, lusts, and craves for sinful practices that we don't want to deny ourselves of. And again, that can be different for all of us. We even find sophisticated ways to rationalize our lawless indulgence of these inner desires and feelings and try to justify our pursuit of them. But they spring 
from our inner feelings, our inner desires, our appetites on the inside, and impulses of our fleshly mind influenced by the world. So you got the world, you got our fleshly desires that are natural in us, and then the third thing where control is nourished, as he says there, the world, the flesh. And then you've got to realize the devil's behind this as well in verse 15, right? He's behind that as well. we got ourselves. we got the world that's pressuring us from the outside. Then we have the devil also saying, you know what? I don't want that person to be a strong Christian. I don't want them to dominate, you know, their lives with righteousness. I want them to fall apart. I want them to be weak inside. And so... The word evil is best described by the word worthless. Worthless. And so this is, uh, it's devilish. It corresponds to the demonic force. So just as Satan deceived Eve back in the garden to do something that God clearly said not to do, that's what he tries to do for us today. Paul once warned the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he said, But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity, that is, the sincerity that is in Christ. The devil's always around with his minions, trying to just peck away and peck away and weaken us inside to allow that that force of self-control and domination to come out in some way or another. And so this root of control is, is envy and selfishness, and it's fed by the world, the flesh, and the devil, according to James 3.13. So we're just framing where the, the source of control comes from. Bitter envying and strife, bitter envying and selfish ambition, fueled by our natural bent, if you will, toward the world, the flesh, and the devil, the earthly, the sensual, and the devilish, or the demonic. So that's the root. Let's look at, in your notes there, number three, uh, the fruit of control. Okay, where does the fruit of control come from then? So uh, look at verse 16. For where envying and strife is, that is, envying and self-ambition, selfish ambition, what's the effect of that? There is confusion and every evil work. When we allow that type of control to take over, nothing, good's come, nothing good comes from it. So there's these two broad terms James is using to describe the fruit of envy and selfish ambition, and here's what it is. Number one, it's confusion. It means disorder or instability. There in your notes. Confusion, it means disorder or instability. So when your life is filled with a passionate desire to control your circumstances and people around you, to continually strive to make your point and win every discussion, to let even little things annoy you and, and not let that go, to be critical of others as a rule and not know when to let something rest, you will suffer from the negative fruit of control in your life. And what is that? Well, that's disorder and instability. Sort of instability is like insecurity. When we have a steady diet of wanting to be in control and wanting to be in charge and letting that world influence us, over time, if we're not getting that fed, there comes a sense of 
inferiority within us. Like we're, we're trying to measure up, but we can't. Why aren't I getting the attention? Why aren't I getting the position? Why aren't I getting that accolade? Why aren't I getting that advance? When I'm not getting that, that can produce confusion, this, this idea of confusion, not being satisfied and, and clear. There's disorder, and when there's disorder in our lives, it leads to instability and sort of inferiority. You'll feel like life is out of control. That's the confusion because you want to be in control but never can. You'll be like that hamster on the wheel that never gets anywhere, just sort of spinning and spinning. And that's the paradox of wanting to be in control. We, if we don't ever get it satisfied, we're always going to be striving for something else, that selfish ambition, that self-satisfaction, and when we can't get it, it affects us inside, so we become sort of miserable on the inside. That's why it's earthly, sensual, and devilish. It's, 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 it's that wisdom that's not from above, it's, it's from below. And so James hits the nail on the head. The pursuit of control leads to confusion in your life. By the way, he uses that same word, that confusion, when he describes over in James chapter 1, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The confusion is that same word as he talks about being unstable. Like it's, it's just consuming us and we're not being that strong, spirit-filled person we can be because we're too distracted and preoccupied with wanting that level of self-satisfaction we just can't get a hold of. And so it produces instability and confusion and out-of-order life. And that's the man who tries to control his own life and does not yield control to the Lord. So he says that, there's confusion, and then he says also in verse 16, and every evil work, every evil work. The word evil is best described as the word worthless. Every worthless work, we're not going to accomplish much it's not going to account for much because we're on the wrong track. We're trying to gratify ourselves rather than please God and serve others. And so it's good for nothing with an utter, utter impossibility of any true gain coming from it is what he's saying here in James chapter 3 and verse 16. All right, so we framed it, right? We framed it. We see that the, the root of where that's at is bitter envy and strife in our hearts, selfish ambition and envy. We see where it's nourished from, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We see that it produces confusion and every evil or worthless work. There's nothing good coming from that. That's that ungodly wisdom of the world, which we're defining as a form of control. And so the good part here, what's the biblical resolution, folks? What's the, what's the biblical revolution for this element of control? So God, in verse 17, he's given us seven clear characteristics that we must apply to our daily living if we're to overcome controlling tendencies. It refers to the godly wisdom rather than the worldly wisdom of envy and selfish ambition. And we have to make all seven a part of our lives, and they're just wonderful character qualities to put into practice. And so let's end with these good qualities that God wants us to have to help fight off that, that natural, you know, desire for control. What is it? 
So James gives it to us, verse 17, he says, but the wisdom that is from above. Aren't you glad we have a Bible that gives us answers for our problems? It's right here in the text. It's so great. He says, but the wisdom, in contrast to the wisdom of this world, the wisdom that is from above, true godly wisdom, is first pure. Is first pure. To be pure is to be free from defilement there in your notes. It's to be free from defilement. It means to have a pure heart and a right motive in all of your relationships, in all your circumstances. It means to have spiritual integrity and moral sincerity. In other words, don't try to manipulate people or events to get your own way. Be pure. Be a real person. Be who you portend to be among others. And don't be double-minded. Don't be two-faced. Be pure. Be genuine. Be real with God. Be real with yourself. Be real with others. We see in the news and so many other outlets, there's just fakeness and, 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 and insincerity all over the place and lies. So what our culture has become. It seems like it's descended to that over the past few years, hasn't it? God says, look, I want you to be just the opposite of that. I want you to be pure. Be real. Be genuine in your life and your heart. When, let your yea be yea and your what? And your nay, nay, right. When you say yes, mean yes. When it's no, mean no. Don't be double-minded. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And so that would be number one, is pure. Be pure, be real. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. Then what, folks? What's the next one? Peaceable. Yeah, it's peaceable. So in, in your notes there, I wrote it down as be peace-loving. Be peace-loving. It reflects one of the Beatitudes that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's the opposite of wanting control. You're trying to keep the peace. And that means there's going to be times when you capitulate. You give in. You say, you know what? This isn't worth dying for. I'm going to let that go. And let the other person have their place or have their position or have their thing if it's not sinful. Just say, you know what? That's not something to to argue or fight over. We're just going to let that go. We're going to be peacemakers. That's the opposite of wanting to have control in our way. It's saying, hey, I want to I be friends. Let's work that out. And so the opposite of peace is conflict. And so Jesus is the prince of peace, right? So when we're like him, we're going to be peacemakers. In order to give up control, we must let Christ have his way in our life. Paul told the Colossians, let the peace of God rule in your hearts and be thankful. And that's something that we all need. If we're to get along in the body of Christ, we must let the peace of Christ rule in us. And that's a conscious choice that we all make to do that. So that's number two. Number three is, third there, is to be gentle. Pure, then peaceable, and gentle. And I think we all know what gentle means, but James is saying Losing control means we must pursue gentleness. It means to be fair. It means to be courteous. It means to be considerate of others and humbly patient. Not ready to just tear into someone. It is not argumentative, not quarrelsome. 
or to be quickly disagreeable. That's the fruit of control. This is the fruit of gentleness, and it is a spiritual fruit, isn't it? One of the fruit of the Spirit. The next one, letter D, and I love this one. It's, it's, uh, it's easy, easily entreated. And there in your notes, it's, what that literally means is easily, easy to be reasoned with. Don't you like that? Don't we like reasonable people? Our society, our, our culture, our politics, there's no one reasonable out there right now, is there? Very few. So in the church of God, with the people of God, this is where this should just flourish. And we take it outside the doors of this place so that we can be reasonable people. Um, it means to be reasoned with. In other words, you're willing to yield without arguing or disputing. You're able to hear and comply with another person's point of view. You're able to calmly discuss things in a calm and understanding way. You're able to accept the request of another without feeling slighted, cheated, or inferior. So we have to ask ourselves tonight, are we easily reasoned with? Are we reasonable with our family when we're driving with our boss, with the neighbor, with the extended relative on the holidays that we don't see eye to eye with. You know, that is just a, that's just pure diamond beauty when we are able to be reasonable with people when the world wants to be so controlling and, and dominating. It's right here in the text. It's just, it's just a, a list of wonderful character qualities that God says, hey, you want to fight off control? Go to James 3.17. It's right there. The next one is mercy and good fruits. I put those together, as you see there, full of mercy and good fruits. These are traits, they show concern for others and cause you to put their needs and desires above our own. That's selflessness. Remember, control is selfishness. And so you'll produce good works on behalf of others out of love and concern and respect for their well-being. You'll come alongside and support others in need with both care and compassion. Do you know, I got to see that so wonderfully these past two and a half weeks with uh, Jamie Klein's family. You know, it's a tense time because she doesn't have a husband who is going to be taking over things. They're younger kids. And then there's a brother her parents passed. And so there's uncles coming in and aunts, and there could have been a lot, of, a lot of tension and a lot of argumentation and a lot of bickering over who's going to get what, what's, what's going to happen here, who's going to do this, who's going to do that. Do you know there really wasn't any of that? It was very, very refreshing. It was wonderful. Everyone seemed to be pulling, let's just care for Jamie. Let's just love Jamie. Let's just minister to Jamie. It was wonderful. It was a pleasure to go over there night after night and to be with the family and try to be a godly influence ourselves to the family. It was a sweet relationship. We made friendships with that family over that. It was just, it was sweet. And, and it fits right here with what we're talking about. It was not controlling and domineering and harsh. There was a kindness. There was a gentleness. There was mercy and good fruits. It was being displayed. And it was, it was a wonderful a wonderful experience for me to behold with some of them being lost. And um, 
having the opportunity to witness to them and present Christ and, and others already saved and just hugging and caring and loving, it was, it truly was like one big happy family. It was very, very sweet. That's what we're talking about, mercy and good fruits. Letter F, impartiality is next. You see it there in verse, the end of verse 17. It means unwavering and constant. You will be consistent, um, yeah, constant. In other words, you're going to be consistent in your interactions with others and not be wishy-washy. You're going to be constant in your relationships, showing no favoritism. You will treat everyone equally and seek to do good to all. Doesn't Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 say that? Do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. There's instruction for us that we're to do good to everybody as Christians. By, by this shall all men know that you're Christians, by the love that we have for one another. And that brings it into the church. We especially love and enjoy one another here. So there's no room for bickering and tension and, you know, uh, getting cross with one another. We come in here, it's an oasis from the world. Do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. That's a sweet thing. And that's what God wants of all of us. And then finally, he says without partiality and without hypocrisy. There's letter G, without hypocrisy. That means genuine, be genuine. It's almost, almost like being pure. See, of all things Jesus condemned, he condemned this the most with the Pharisees. A controlling person can speak out of both sides of their mouth because they're trying to win over and dominate. That's exactly who the Pharisees were. And Jesus had his harshest words for them because they were hypocritical. They were not genuine. He called them whited walls and, and so on and so forth. And so that is the epitome of selfish ambition and the worst form of control when we are hypocritical. So never let your desire for control cause you to stoop to hypocrisy in your testimony for the Lord. Hypocrisy is one of the biggest things that will turn our children off and bring rebellion in their life. And hypocrisy is one of the greatest things that will turn off our witness to the lost world out there because they say, if that's what Christianity is, forget it. I don't want that. And so James is telling us here, put that off. No hypocrisy. That, that's not a fruit that we want to have. Without hypocrisy is what we want. So what's the conclusion? It is this. Contrast the characteristics of a controlling person with the Christ-like qualities of James 3.17. Put these qualities into practice and your desire for controlling others will completely change. They'll completely change. Why? Because it's wisdom that's from above. It's right from God and His Word. Let's, let's put that into practice this week. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank You for the simplicity and the truth of God's Word to help us practically know how to live our life on this earth with one another's and those outside the realm of faith. Lord, thank you for the simple truth of James that can bring it to our attention. Help us now to live it and to use it to influence others for your glory and to put off that selfish ambition and strife and, and envy that is a cancer of our soul. Thank you for each one here tonight. Bless us as we seek to serve you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, Philippians chapter 1. We will go through this book for the next few months, verse by verse. Now, just a, a reminder how to find Philippians in your New Testament. 
G-E-P-C, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, G-E-P-C. Gentiles eat? Pork chops. Okay, you got it. G-E-P-C. Let's go Philippians uh, chapter 1, and we will learn together how to magnify Christ in our daily lives in the simple everything, everyday things we do. This is one of the most encouraging and practical books in all the New Testament. Paul writing from a prison cell in Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. If he is found guilty, he will be sentenced to death. The most natural question that would be going through his mind is, is God finished with me? Is this the end of my life? But that kind of fear is not in his thoughts. In fact, as he writes this letter to these Christians of Philippi, it's the opposite. The words joy, rejoice, gladness. You'll find it 19 times. My message entitled is, God is not finished with me yet. Please stand with me as I read the opening verses, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can come to the word of God and find encouragement, to find hope, to build our faith. Lord, help us to see that you are working in our lives and you will continue to do that work until we see you face to face. Be one that is not certain of where they'll spend eternity when they die. May the Spirit of God convict them and draw them to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. More than 1,600 people have jumped to their death off of the Golden Gate Bridge, making it the top place in America for people to take their lives. The good news is that more than 100 people are talked down and do not jump every year. Those who do jump free fall for four seconds. And then they hit the water at 75 miles an hour. 95% of those who jump die on impact. But some do survive. Like a young married man named Ken Baldwin. Ken was severely depressed, but as soon as he jumped, he recalls, I instantly realized that everything in my life that I thought was unfixable was totally fixable except for having just jumped. <laughs> Ken Hines had the same experience. He recalls, I jumped. My first thought was, what did I just do? I don't want to die. An article in the New Yorker states that survivors often regret their decision in midair, if not before. 
Jody's youngest brother, Paul Friesen, was a police officer in Vancouver, British Columbia, for a couple of years. And one night he came ready to jump off a high bridge. He tried to talk her down, but after a few minutes, she finally said, nobody cares for me, nobody. And Paul said, I do, I care for you. And as she turned to jump, he reached out and grabbed her arm and he pulled her back to safety. Soon the ambulance came to get her some help. But before he left the scene, he checked in on her. And with tears, she looked in his eyes and she said to Paul, Thank you. Thank you. And that's what the Apostle Paul does in this chapter. He reaches out to grab our arm to keep us from jumping into despair. And he says, God is not finished with us. Today I want you to feel the grasp of the Holy Spirit of God on your arm. I want you to know that God is reaching out to you today. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to give Christians hope to remind them that, that God is not finished with them. Even when our circumstances seem to be hopeless and it seems that there's no way out. So what hinders? What hinders God working through us? What, what makes us lose hope? And the answer is despair. And so what are the causes of great despair? There are several. I'll share just a couple of them with you. Loss of health can bring despair. Three of our dear sisters in our church family went to their heavenly home in just the last three and a half weeks, but all of them remained strong in their faith. Their failing health brought them to a, a place where there is no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more sin. When we come to Christ, we are saved from sin, but we are not saved from sickness. Philippians chapter 2, verse 27, uh, Paul will tell us that Epaphroditus was so sick, he was close to death. Why? For the work of Christ. And that one verse is the death blow to the health and wealth gospel you will hear on television. It is not God's will for everyone to be healthy or wealthy. Loss of health can bring despair. Secondly, uh, loss of hope. This letter gives hope to every Christian. And then the loss of love, the loss of loved ones. Whether the loss of love is through death or divorce or a romantic breakup, the pain is real and it can cause great despair. And then guilt over sin or embarrassing mistakes. You ever feel bad about that? Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone sins, and everyone feels bad about it, and it can lead to great despair. Hockey goalie Jacques Plant said, How would you like a job where every time you make a mistake, a big red light goes on and 18,000 people boo? <laughs> That's a tough job. What causes great despair? It's loss of health and loss of hope and loss of love, guilt over sin, and one more, loss of favorable circumstances. And that's the Apostle Paul right here in Philippians. It describes Paul. He begins the letter with his signature. Verse 1, Paul. Doesn't that make sense? You know, when we, we, we get a letter, we write, we, we write it or we receive it, and then you have to flip it over and look at the bottom to see who wrote it. Well, they did it the smart way. They started with who wrote it. Paul. Paul, where are you? 
He's in prison three times in this chapter. He mentions he is in bonds. He writes from prison, awaiting possible execution. But he's not lost hope. In fact, his faith is growing. Uh, his, his joy is overflowing. Go figure. I mean, this is a guy that has something to teach me about life. How about you? Paul and Timothy. Timothy is a faithful friend. Half Jew, half Greek, a whole Christian. Together they are servants of Jesus Christ. Doulos. Paul says we are, we are slaves to Jesus. Jesus, the name of the Son of God, and it implies his humility. Christ, the anointed one, a Messiah, identifying his position. <clears throat> now on page two, who does God want to work through? <clears throat> we see two groups. The saints, verse one. To the saints... In Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. Now, saint literally means holy ones. You don't have to witness a miracle and die and then be canonized a hundred years later to become a saint. In the New Testament, everyone who is a Christian is a saint. God divides the human race into two categories. And it's not by nationality. It's not by politics. It's not by majority or minority status. It's not by your sexual preference. There's two categories. That's it. Sinners and saints. Sinners and saints. Saints are simply saved sinners. They are forgiven sinners. So how do you become a saint? Understand that our sin separates us from God. No one is going to heaven with sin on their soul. You can't do that. Heaven's a holy place. God's a holy God. And so you see that the problem is sin and the penalty is death. The wages of sin is death. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The physical death is when the body dies and the soul separates from the body. The second death is when body and soul are cast into the lake of fire forever. Eternal death. Understand your sin separates you from God. Secondly, understand that our feeble attempts to reach God on our own don't work. Good works, religion, giving money, trying to be good, trying to be sincere will not take away your sin. So how do I get rid of my sin? Understand that receiving Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the Savior. He took our place when he died upon the cross. He took our hell to give us heaven. Salvation's a gift. It's a free gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of what? Not of works, lest any man should boast. So God offers this free gift. Jesus Christ is the bridge to bring us to the Father, to bring us to heaven. And so our position, God declares us righteous. We're called saints. We're called saints. Our practice, God expects us to live righteously. Have you ever met a Christian who, who doesn't live righteous all the time? You ever met someone, they're a Christian, but they don't act like a saint? How about the one in the mirror in the morning, all right? You know, we all need some help here. If Paul were writing this letter to us, he'd say, to the saints at Valley Forge Baptist, God calls you a saint. What does that do to your self-image? God calls you a saint. 
God wants to work through you. He says you're a holy one. Notice, secondly, it's the church leaders, bishops to the saints and bishops. Bishops and deacons, sorry, the, the church leaders. Uh, bishops are pastors. God calls pastors to give leadership. The word pastor means shepherd. And God expects the sheep to follow the shepherd. Pastor, bishop, elder, same office. God has given our church some wonderful pastors, and Pastor Elstock, Pastor Eifert, Pastor Colton, Pastor Joyner, and their wives. They are to be loved, they are to be prayed for. And the second office is that of deacons. The word means servant. But aren't we all to be servants of God? And the answer is absolutely. But there's a group of men who are designated servants to do three things. They take care of widows. They assist the leaders of the church. And they help stop grumbling and complaining. Acts chapter 6. That's their job description. And I thank God for the many men who are over 30 plus years who have faithfully served as deacons. For their wives and their kids. Verse 2. Verse 2, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You will find this exact sentence written to every single church in the New Testament. Grace and peace. You see, where there is grace, there is going to be peace. Contention grows when grace is lacking. Grace turns the scowl into a smile. Grace replaces irritation with patience. Grace supernaturally evaporates bitterness and, and resentment. I, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing grace that God has given to us, that he wants to work through us. So now let's see how does God work through us and several points Paul gives us here. First of all is through prayer. Uh, through prayer. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests the joy. Who was Paul praying for? Who was Paul remembering? Well, we know some of them, and the faces would come to his mind. Can you see their faces? Uh, Lydia on the left. Lydia was the businesswoman, the seller of purple. And when she got saved, she opened her home and she said, Paul, have church in my house. And then there was the slave girl uh, who, who uh, was demon-possessed, and Paul cast out the demon. And then there was the guard in the jail who, who said, what must I do to be saved? Paul knew these people by name. He prayed for them by name. Charter members of the church in Philippi. Now you can find a prayer list in the back of the bulletin. You can find the weekly prayer list from Wednesday night. And the Bible says, pray for one another. Paul said, brethren, pray for us. The deepest longings of your heart will come out in your prayers to God. Don't be shy about asking pastors. Don't be shy about asking others to pray for you. You just have to set aside a little bit of your pride so that you might invite people to pray for you the way Paul did. You're inviting God to work in your life. If you're not praying for others, it may be that your heart has grown cold to God. It may be that your heart is growing in selfishness and you don't pray for others. How does God work through us? Uh, through prayer, but secondly, through fellowship. Verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day till now. Now, if you don't think you need Christian fellowship, you are mistaken. Uh, you need to be strengthened by fellowship, and you need to give strength to others by your fellowship. Have you seen this graphic from our discipleship material that Pastor Elstock put together? You know what the largest living thing in the world is? It's not a whale. The largest living thing in the world is what? It's the giant sequoia trees. 
I mean, they're the biggest in the world. They, they, uh, they've lived for over 2,000 years. Amazingly enough, they have shallow roots. How in the world can these trees stand strong for 2,000 years with shallow roots? And the answer is an interlocking root system. They have to have fellowship and be bound to one another. You're never going to find a large sequoia in California all by itself. Won't happen. They need to be together. And so it is with you and I. We need to be together. What is fellowship? It's a general term. It means friendship. A fellowship is friendship with like-minded Christians. Now, we can have friends with unbelievers. They just can't be our closest friends. Our closest friends need to be people who love Christ. Why? Because of the influence. And then secondly is sharing. Uh, it is fellowship when you share a meal, when you share encouragement, when you share help. And then the bond. The bond is in Christ. By the Holy Spirit, we set aside our differences because of the Holy Spirit of God. Before I got up to preach a week ago Monday to 75 Iranians, they had a song service. Now, on Sunday, this church, this church has a, a biblical worship style very much like ours. But on Monday, he lets the man who does the interpreting into the Farsi language lead the music. And then the music came on, and Brother Demakos, he leans over and he said, please excuse their music style. And because of grace and because of the bond we have in Christ, I set aside my musical preference. That's not compromise. That's just being gracious. That's being kind to them. What we share in Christ is greater than our differences. They used to be Muslims, and now they're Christians. And in fellowship, we are united by common beliefs and common goals. Uh, we could even speak the same language, but the same Holy Spirit was in me, was in them, even though they're in multi from multiple countries around the world. Fellowship. There's a bond. There's a unity. How does God work through us? Through prayer, through fellowship. And here it is, through spiritual confidence. Philippians 1.6 is one of my 25 favorite verses in the book of Philippians. You got to memorize it. You have to get this truth in your heart, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Here it is. God begins his work in your life. When you became a Christian, you didn't suddenly find God. God found you. God was seeking you. He was pursuing you. And when you heard the word of God, uh, the spirit of God turns on a, a light and you realize you can't get to heaven with your sin and that Jesus is the Savior who died upon a cross and rose again and offered this gift and you received the gift of God and became a child of God. But notice, think this through. If God began the work in your life, then he will finish it. Number two, God will complete his work in your life, and that's what verse 6 says. Greece is a tough place to start a church. Even the apostle Paul did not get a church started in Athens. George Demakos was born in Greece, raised in New York, married a New Yorker. They were saved. They went to my Bible college in Missouri. They went to Greece. He started a church, but not without hardships. Once a Greek Orthodox priest took a book and hit him so hard in his back that he broke two vertebrae, put him in the hospital. After one term, he said, that's it. 
packed up all his stuff, shipped it back home, came back for his first furlough, and someone said, just wait, just wait, George. Don't, don't resign yet. He finished his furlough, and God, who began the good work, said, you can't stay in America. You go back to Greece. And he did. He returned for two more decades. Here, here, here's an email from missionary George and Louisa Demakos. Dear Pastor Scott, it was such a blessing to meet you and your family. Michael gave me your email so I can send you the statistics regarding the Voice of Truth ministry to the refugees. We have been, been in Greece for almost 24 years, started three churches, but the last few years have been the greatest blessings to see how God is at work in Greece, bringing people from closed countries to hear the gospel for the first time. We have been ministering to refugees for almost seven years. We have seen people save, get saved every week for the past 77 straight months. We have seen 1,893 people saved and 1,354 baptized, most of them from Iran, some from Afghanistan, and a few Greeks. God is at work, and we are humbled to be his servants in his harvest. Please keep us in your prayers for health and safety, for hearts to be opened to the gospel, for new converts to be discipled, for his glory. George and Louisa Demakos. Aren't you glad they didn't quit after the first term? Aren't you glad they went back? God, who began the good work, God will finish it in your life. Don't quit. Don't quit on God. You can walk away from God, but he won't walk away from you. You can walk away from God, but you're not going to get too far. He's going to find you. Knock on your door and bring you back through uniting with our leaders, verse 7 and 8, even as it is meet, it is right for me to think about I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all are partakers of my grace. God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Paul had these Christians in his heart they were in his heart. What is he saying? He's saying, I have a deep love for you. Uh, you have people like that in your life, don't you? They come to your thoughts. Even if you don't see them often, they're there in your thoughts. You're thinking of them. You're praying for them. You love them. His imprisonment has not affected their relationship. Paul's crime is that he believes and preaches there is a king greater than Caesar. That is a crime worthy of death. In your notes... In your notes on page 3, John Phillips writes, Anyone who showed friendship for such an insurrectionist like Paul might soon share his chains. The Philippians paid no heed to this danger. They boldly stood by Paul. Their bold stand can be likened to those who sheltered Jews during the Nazi reign of terror in Europe. And then through increasing in love, uh, verse 9, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound, that your love may grow. Is your love growing? Is it growing? For God and for people, um, this is a divine love, an agape love, not some sentimental love, not let's save the uh, seals in Alaska. No, no. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to love its action. Love is sacrifice. Love is meeting the needs of another. But notice the end of verse 9. 
that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That is discernment. What does knowledge and judgment look like when there's no love? Here it is. Knowledge without love, that equals pride. Judgment without love, that equals criticism. If God's love is not growing in your heart, then pride and criticism, it'll, it'll dominate your words, it'll dominate your attitude and your personality, and you'll never have joy. Look at the next one. Through choosing the excellent, verse 10, that ye may approve things that are excellent. Now, most reasonable people, they know the difference between good and bad, but those who choose the excellent know the, know the difference between good, better, and best. And as you grow as a Christian, as you grow in his love and wisdom and insight, you'll choose to spend your time and your money on the excellent things. Not just the good, not just the better, but you'll choose the, the best things. And that's what separates the weak from the strong, those who influence and those who don't. But most people are impulsive and they bounce around like a ball. They simply react. They react to the news. They react to their friends and their family. We call these people moody, moody people. They have yet to learn how to submit to the Spirit of God and to His control. How does God work through us? One more. The last one is through choosing integrity. Look at the end of verse 10. That you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Now, now to be sincere means to be genuine. It means, it means to be real. Don't try and fake it. Sincere is a word that means judged by sunlight. The Latin word is sincere, and it means without wax. Now, what does that mean? Well, when a potter would, would make a pot, jar, or bowl in ancient days, he would fire it, put it in, and bake it. And sometimes the jar would crack. And so if he was dishonest, he would take hard wax and put in the crack, and then he would paint it, and then he'd sell it. But the wise shopper would come along and he'd pick up that jar and he'd, he'd hold it up in the sunlight and he'd rotate it and that sunlight could go through that crack and he would know that this thing is, this thing is cracked. It's a cracked pot. And if he buys it and the first time you put hot liquid in, what happens to the wax? It melts. It melts. I mean, it's useless. The analogy is obvious. He says, don't have a life filled with flaws. Don't fake it. Don't fake it with the wax of hypocrisy. Be sincere. Be real. Be genuine. Our life needs to be tested. And it will be if we have integrity. Now, we all fall short, don't we? <laughs> all of us are a bunch of crackpots, right? You crackpot? Right. But the one who can fill the cracks in our lives is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we need. Look at verse 11. And so he says, to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. You can't do this on your own. You come to the Lord and you say, here's my crackpot. I want to be sincere. I want to be without wax. I want you to fill my life. And he will. Why? Because God's not finished with you. He started something, and he's going to fulfill it. Without him, you will fall 
and you will fail. Without him, you may jump into despair and you may think, nobody cares, nobody cares. But like Paul Friesen said to that lady in that bridge that day, I do, I care for you. And that's what God is saying to you and me today. I care, I care for you. So reach out to the Lord today. Why? Because he is reaching out to you. He is reaching out to grab your arm and pull you back into his way. May we pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the power of this book of Philippians and what it will mean to each one of us as we, as we grow in our faith and grow closer to you. Help us to apply your truth and your principles to our daily decisions that we might magnify Christ. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. You'd say, Pastor, if I, if I died today, I know I would go to heaven. I have this assurance. I have this confidence. I have this peace. I know that heaven's my home. I have a Bible reason that I know heaven's my home. Would you simply raise your hand and testify, I am a follower of Christ. You may put your hands down. Now, maybe you couldn't raise your hand, or maybe you did, and you're just not sure. My question to you is, can you think of any reason why you wouldn't want to receive the gift of God today? It's not about getting baptized. It's not about joining a church. It's not about becoming a Baptist. It's about becoming a real Christian, a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? You can't get to heaven with your sin, and only Jesus can forgive your sin, all of them past, present, and future. And so right now, if you, if you sense the Spirit of God tapping on your heart, say yes. Open your heart. You say, how? How do I do that? The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you can do that calling right now. You can pray to the Lord right now. Right in your seat, you can pray sincerely. You can pray silently. God will hear the prayer of your heart. Would you pray with me now? Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Today, I choose to follow Christ. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, as we show respect to our neighbor. If you just pray with me, I want to pray for you. Would you simply raise your hand and say, Pastor, I, I just pray with you and I meant it. Anyone at all, would you hold your hand up high for a moment? I just pray with you to receive Jesus as my Savior. Just hold it up high for a moment. Anyone at all, as one did in the first service, how about you? Father, thank you for the Word of God to strengthen our faith, to guide us in how to live, and to not go into despair and lose hope, but to know with confidence you are working in us, you are working through us. Now, Father, we yield ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we stand together. Let's all stand. We're going to sing a song of invitation today. In my life, be glorified. And maybe you want to uh, pray there in your seat or pray at the altar. If you want to see a pastor, a pastor's wife, you come as we sing. <laughs> well, good evening, everyone. It's so good to be back this side of the pond and with you all this evening. And uh, we had a wonderful trip and uh, it was just a blessing to be a part of it. We had a great group and uh, it was awesome to have such a wonderful supporting church back home praying for us and uh, following along with our journey and uh, it was just a blessing and we just thank you so much. And it's so good to be able to do a final concert back at our home church here. And uh, our full concert is just over an hour. We're not doing the whole thing tonight, but uh, we hope the song selections will be a blessing to you and uh, will encourage your heart. Um, as Pastor said, there are three songs that uh, we're going to be asking you to join with us about halfway through or so, and uh, we'll let you know when that happens. But we'd love for you to sing out and, uh, and be a part of it. This first song, um, Oh Praise the Name, is uh, uh, a wonderful song that we learned uh, as part of our um, uh, selections, and this is one of the first songs we'll ask you to sing with us. So I hope you enjoy it. my mind to Calvary, where Jesus fled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. Oh, praise the name. 
champion of world renown I may never get to meet. But I have an invitation to hasten to his throne, to lay my burdens at his feet and make my petitions known. I can pray, though the storm around me rages, I can trust the rock of ages when I Who has done 
done great wonders and the heavens raised. Give him thanks, give him thanks, yet will not forget us in our lowest state. Give him thanks, give him thanks, his love endures forever. outstanding. I'd like to ask our ushers to come at this time where we receive our tithes and offerings, our missions giving tonight. Uh, these folks, they took a week off work, a week of vacation. They paid their own way to be able to make this trip, and so it's a sacrifice for them to be able to do this, and they do it because they love the Lord, they love our missionaries. Uh, the European missionaries have a very challenging field. Uh, just as the Apostle Paul went to Athens and had such little fruit respond from it, that's really what's going on today. What I share with you this morning about the Iranian and Afghan refugee ministry, that is an unusual working of God. 
And we rejoice in that and praise God for the hundreds and hundreds that have come to Christ. Uh, but for the most part, uh, it's, it's slow going. Uh, Brother Demakos, who's been in Greece 30, 24 years, he said, you can go four to five years to win one Greek to Christ. It can take two to three years to see them get baptized. And then all of their family will pounce upon them and want to pull them away. And so when a group like this goes, it warms their hearts. It warms, their, it encourages them. And then I, I get a thank you note with a box of chocolate uh, from Germany. <laughs> so it just doesn't get any better than that. But uh, so thank you team for going and being a blessing and touching the hearts and lives of the missionaries. And then you'll hear in just a few moments about the fruit of that, of, of many visitors coming up, many contacts being made uh, for these missionaries. May we pray together and ask God to bless this time. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love to us. Thank you that we can sing praise to your name and exalt our Savior. And Father, I pray tonight that the power of Christ, the power of the cross will touch our hearts and motivate us that we will be faithful in our mission field, just as these missionaries in Germany, France, Greece are faithful to you, may we also be faithful. Take the gifts we give tonight, the gift of worship, of our offerings, and use them to multiply souls into your kingdom. Thank you for one saved earlier today. We rejoice in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you. I can ask Barry Moyer to come now. He is a leader of this trip and doing a lot of details. Did an outstanding job. Thank you for that. Give us a recap of what happened. Well, I hope you enjoyed the music so far. The group has been so excited to be able to do our final concert here before you guys. In between the songs, we just want to be able to tell you about the trip and what all God has done for us. The two main goals of these music mission trips is the one to provide a outreach opportunity for the missionaries. Uh, there's a lot of people that find that are reluctant to come to the church services, but they will come out to a concert. And by having these concerts, they're able to advertise in the community, put out posters, hand out flyers. So that's just another opportunity for the church to get their name out to their community. Our second goal is just to be an encouragement to the missionaries and to the churches. A lot of the churches are smaller. They don't have the people, the resources for a special music program. So when we're able to go there and play songs for them, it's a real encouragement for them. Throughout the week, we dealt with six missionaries over the week, and two of them we support. The first ones are Andrew and Ramona Wilson. They're there on the left. They've been in Germany since 2003. Uh, we thoroughly enjoyed the couple days we got to spend with them. We got to hear about their ministry, and we got to see their love and their passion for the people in that area. Uh, this is the right before our first concert. Andrew was excited about the turnout there. There were several visitors that came out for just for the concert. One lady even came holding the flyer that they passed out. We also had an opportunity to play in an American military church, and that was fun for us because that was the only all-English concert we had that week, and we were able to just enjoy spending time with them uh, afterwards as well. After that, we drove a couple hours to the New Traveling area where we ministered with Todd and Kim Lepedo, our missionaries. We were there two years ago, and it was great that we were able to pick up right where we left off with them. Uh, the Lepedos partner with the Rading family. Here's Bob Rading there with Josh. Uh, they partnered together for the church in New Traveling, and most of the guys got to stay with the Ratings that weekend, just had a great time getting to know them. They're the boys. And uh, we can't leave out little Reagan. There she is, two and a half years old. Uh, she was ready to fit in. Uh, if anything happened with Flossie, she was ready to fill in. So we had a great time with, uh, with the Ratings that week. The one morning, we had an opportunity to do a concert at the nursing home. That had to be one of our funner concerts. They were all fun, but this was unique. It was a great setting, and as the concert went, just more and more people kept coming out for the concert, and the employees, instead of just dropping off the residents, they stayed, and by the time we were done, we had a good crowd, and when we were completely done, they gave us a nice long applause and even asked for an encore, which we were more than happy to do. But the exciting part here was, after the concert, Bob was talking to the lady in charge of this event, and she said she brings in groups all the time, but there was something different about our group. She didn't know what it was. And uh, she doesn't know that much English, but she said while the songs were going on, she had goosebumps all over. And again, she just didn't know why. So that was awesome, and it provided Bob an opportunity to talk to him. Uh, as far as advertising, here's a poster that Todd and Bob put out in the community. They put out about 20 signs in the community, so we have a picture. And uh, afterwards, we were looking at this. No, we didn't plan on being segregated on either side, but that's just how it worked out. We did a midweek concert there with Keith Klaus. He's there on the left. Keith is the veteran missionary in that area. He's been in Germany for 15 years, and it was through him and that church that the Lepedos and Ratings started their church in New Traveling. So uh, he was super excited about the turnout there. We had a full room, and uh, there's about 10 to 15 visitors that came out just for the concert. And if you can see there on the screen, for all of our songs, we had them translated into German, so that way as the group was singing, the instruments were playing, they were able to follow along in their language with the words up on the screen. And if you see the ladies on the bottom right, we had concert booklets we passed out to everyone. Those also had the words of the song. They had some stories about some of the songs, and at the end, there was a plan of salvation that they got to take out with them. Uh, for the next slide, though, some of our touring, we got to go to this old cathedral built in the 1200s. 
and the acoustics in there were awesome, and we got permission to uh, sing a few songs, so they were excited about that. Here's a clip of that. to be one of the highlights of the week. Just the acoustics in there were amazing. That was just done on a cell phone. The neater part of that, there was other tourists in the cathedral that time, and by the time we were done, there's about 15, 20 people that just came and listened to us, so that was exciting. Uh, the one afternoon, we actually split up our group. All the singers went with Bob to a hospital visit. Uh, in there, they sang a few songs, which again, drew all the patients, all the nurses down to that room, so Bob had an opportunity to talk to them. And then uh, the rest of us went out passing out flyers for the concert later on that week. And when you're on a music mission trip, you have to stop and take a picture of the town sign when it's after a famous composer. So uh, we did another concert that week with Dan and Dina Brown. They're there on the left. Awesome couple. We were able to be with them two years ago when we went on the trip. They were a new young church just starting out, and he couldn't thank us enough for coming over them because by advertising, passing out flyers for that concert, that really put them on the map in that community. And since we left, their church has more than doubled. So that was a praise from last trip. For this trip, he went out, he had signs throughout the community advertising the concert. And then when we had the concert, this was just an amazing setting. Uh, it was the funnest one we had all week. It was in the community fine arts room. And uh, last time, we had 25 people at our concert. This time, we had 75 to 80. So that was a praise with about 15 to 20 of them being visitors. They all left with a concert booklet and material from their church. As we went throughout the week, we had a chance to, as we crisscrossed southern Germany, to stop at a few places. And two of the places that really impacted us was here at the uh, Nazi political headquarters in Nuremberg. This is a little memorial uh, supposed to symbolize the train tracks going to the death camps. And they're maybe hard to see, but all those cards on the bottom are names of people that died in the camps. And then we also got to go to the Dachau concentration camp. Here is all the footers from all the barracks that were tore down. And just what a contrast. Here we got to go to two places where we got to see what happens when people are filled with sin. And then compare that to as we're singing about the gospel and what Christ can do for you. So as we left Dachau, the group was saying that they were pumped to go do the concerts, that they wanted to convey the messages of the songs. So that was impactful in and of itself. We finished the week by doing the concert there for the Lepedos and Ratings and the Traveling. Again, the Lord blessed. Uh, there was a full room. There's about 10 to 12 visitors there. And uh, again... We uh, give all the praise to God for that. If the group wants to start getting ready, we'll do the second half of the program. I want to thank you as the church for praying for us. Thank you for all the kind words of encouragement you gave us before we left. It was exciting for us to feel your excitement about us going on the trip. And lastly, I want to publicly thank the group. There was a lot of hard work, a lot of practices that went in to make this happen. We had our first meeting in last August, and we started practicing in October. So. Uh, there was a lot of times we spent together. I also want to thank Joe Delp for allowing us to come to uh, do a concert with his church. It was great to be there and uh, minister with you guys. So uh, the group is going to start a second half, uh, excuse me, second half of our program. Enjoy the music. Listen to the words to the song titled Jesus.
next song is actually one of my favorites and one of the my favorites that the choir sings and uh, mercy tree it's always been a blessing every time the choir sings it and i was so excited when i knew that our group was going to be singing and uh, we'll ask you to join in as well halfway through the song
an endless mercy tree every broken weary soul find your rest and be made whole stripes of blood that stain its frame shed to wash away our shame from the scars pure love released salvation by the mercy
For those of you who don't know me, my name is Victor Marshall, and I was privileged to be a part of this team for this missions trip. I'm going to share a brief testimony that a lot of us have kind of hit us differently as we were all on this trip, and that's the truth that missionaries are normal people. A lot of times we think of our missionaries as these spiritual giants in a faraway land doing God's work, and we can't relate to them. So in not relating to them, we don't pray for them, or we don't pray for them like we should. But when you sit in their living rooms and you play with their kids and you hear their stories, you, you pick up on things and you realize, hey, he's not doing well in school. I should pray for that. Or there's a new job that you're very nervous about that I can pray for. Or everybody's got the stomach bug. And I can relate to the stomach bug. Everyone here can relate to the stomach bug. And we can all pray for the stomach bug. The truth of the matter is missionaries are normal people. They've got normal people wants. They have normal people needs. I'm a regular person. I'm a normal person. And I can pray for normal people problems. I can give missionaries my normal people prayers. That's it. I'm done. Told you it was brief. <laughs> this next song was a crowd favorite in Germany. It was one of those songs where we would introduce it, we'd invite them to sing, and they'd immediately start singing like Google Translate back at us in German. And it would be so loud. Sometimes it was so loud we could barely hear ourselves. We expect nothing less from all of you here at our home church. <laughs> Take it away, Frank. <laughs>
So 
What a blessing. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 18, he said, as a missionary, he said, you have refreshed my spirit and yours. And this is what he did. Uh, this morning we talked about proving things that are excellent, uh, choosing the good, better, best. They, they made the decision in August and began practicing in October. That's a lot of effort, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of giving to bless us tonight, to bless those missionaries and I just have to ask you, 
what are you going to do for Jesus? What kind of sacrifice are you going to make time-wise, money-wise, energy-wise for things that count for eternity? If you have a Bible, uh, just open to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we close in just a moment here. But we sense the theme through this wonderful music, uh, these hymns, these songs, and the theme was Christ, Jesus Christ. It was Good Friday. It was Easter Sunday. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. If you have a pen or pencil, you want to underline the phrase, the power of God. If I give you the Greek word, it is the word dunamis. Dunamis. What does it sound like? Dynamite. Uh, but in our context, in fact, you're, you're on a particular piece of land right here, this, this piece of property right here in 1995, we needed dynamite to blow up the rocks. And so we had to exit the building. The kids had to go out. It was kind of exciting. We went outside, and uh, they pushed the plunger down, and boom! And I mean, the dynamite went off, and the rocks were torn, and we had to check with all the neighbors and make sure we didn't make any cracks in their walls. Now, God's dynamite, it doesn't, it doesn't blow things up to tear it down, but it does blow up the hard, rocky soil so the light of Jesus Christ can penetrate and come in. The cross was not only an instrument of Jesus' death, but it is also an instrument leading to our salvation. What appears to be darkness, death, dying, defeat, it is the exact opposite. Drop down to verse 22. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You can underline it again. The power of God. So tonight, if, if you have looked at the cross with spiritual eyes... If you've heard the message with spiritual ears, you believe. You believe. You believe the truth that God loves you. The evidence of that love is Jesus taking your hell, dying for you, rising again. But with, with belief, with salvation comes responsibility. The blind man, I was blind, now I see. Those, those, those beggars in the Old Testament that went into the, the, the Syrian camp and found all the goods, the gold, the food, the clothes, and they, they went and they hid some, and then they came back and they said, we do not well if we keep this good news to ourselves. Some evil shall befall us. Let us go now to the city, the city that is perishing in famine. And tell them the good news. This is who we are. we are. We are beggars that have been given the bread of life. We're thirsty and we've been given the living water. How can we keep it to ourselves? We can't. Because it is the power of God. In Galatians, 
Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. The cross, the cross is where Jesus took my sin and he died. And when I received that great news, the world must be dead to me and be alive to the Lord Jesus, alive to the message that we are to share. Now, these hymn writers have masterfully given the victory over death. Listen to, to the phrase from in the Mercy Tree song. Death has died. Love has won. If that doesn't make you Pentecostal, I don't know what will. <laughs> Death has died. Love has won. Brothers and sisters, we've just had three funerals in three and a half weeks. But these ladies are more alive than they've ever been in the presence of God because of the cross. Death has died. Love has won. They're going to get glorified bodies. They just beat us to it. And then the hymn writer in the power of the cross said, death is crushed to death. Isn't that good? Death is crushed to death. And we have life in Christ. We are alive in Christ. We've been given so much. And so this is why we worship Jesus with all of our heart, mind, and soul because his love is so great so powerful we just can't keep it inside let's share it and God has given us an opportunity in our culture to invite people to a good Friday service yes to an Easter egg hunt to an Easter service it's an opportunity in our culture where they'll say well yes how come how come and we want to invite them to come to Christ to come to salvation. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for what we have heard tonight. Our hearts have been touched and our soul and spirit has soared to heaven to worship uh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Savior Jesus. And may he always be in the forefront of our, our minds thinking of, of the souls of men and women and young people and children. This is our burden, our responsibility, our joy to share the good news that Jesus saves. Bless now in this invitation, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. May we stand together and we'll sing one verse of one song tonight, my Jesus, I love thee. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. We have it. Let's sing it as unto the Lord.